0: Father God, we love you. We really do. The thing we need most of all right now for our hearts, for our souls, is to hear from you, to hear from your Son through the Scriptures what you are calling us into, not only as a body, uh, risen hope, as a church, but as individuals, as families, as people who have been called by name through the gospel to be a part of your family. I pray that you would draw us deeper into the reality of following Jesus this morning and that we would be, after seeing the glory and worth of Christ held out in the scriptures, all of us captivated and willing to do whatever it takes in order to bring the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ to this world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Mark 8, starting with verse 34, tells us this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's hard to temper those words, to make them more palatable for outsiders or even for Christians who were reading texts like this too. I think we're tempted naturally to try to make Christianity as simple and as easy as possible, and then Jesus comes out and says something like this. Jesus was never afraid of hard statements, and he's not afraid to demand from his people what he really deserves, and his demand here is, is clear. Jesus Christ deserves our entire lives. Not a single thing can remain on bench. <clears throat> he deserves everything from us. And uh, this means that he is not a secondary aspect of our lives or a secondary aspect of our religion. He's not just something we think about on the weekends or when we get around to it. Jesus, for the Christian, for those who follow him, is everything. He is everything to us. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And when you see his worth as this kind of beauty and glory, you do long to give your life for him and for his purposes in this world. And the way Jesus describes this in the scriptures is taking up your cross. That's how he describes following him. To take up your cross isn't a a statement about a burden that you bear in particular. It's not a religious symbol that we wear like a t-shirt. He's talking about, when he says the word cross, the Roman instrument of torture and death. He's talking about dying. To follow Jesus is to die for him. And and he doesn't just mean in a metaphorical way that you'd see in a bumper sticker. He's talking about loving him, loving Christ, more than our own lives or anything we have in it. That's what he's referring to here. Christianity isn't downshifting in life and in our faith to the lowest possible setting and just going on cruise control, according to Jesus here that's not a that's not christianity at all what we see in the new testament is that christianity is the act of denying oneself it is denying yourself so completely and embracing so completely Christ Jesus and that's what he means here in mark 8 and that's what we're going to be focusing on the next few weeks we're going to take a little break from the book of john and for this week and the next four or five weeks <coughs> excuse me we're going to be looking at this Uh, Not this passage, but we're going to be looking at the book of Acts to explore this uh, text in Mark 8 and what it means in Mark 8 for Jesus to say these things. Uh, Every summer we do a a series that's kind of focused on mission. If you remember two years ago, we did For King and Kingdom, and this uh, last summer we did Love Thy Neighbor. And this summer we're looking at this, and, and the series that we're doing right now is called To Die For. And obviously, that's an idiom in our culture to mean all sorts of things. But here, I want to look at that phrase in reference to the words of Jesus Christ because he says that's the cost of following him, that we deny ourselves. And when he says deny ourselves, he's not just talking about, oh, those are expendable things in your lives that you want but don't need. He's referring to our entire life. Deny yourself, he says which is why he tells us to take up his, the cross, take up our cross, take up the cross that he's bearing, which is that we are following him, not just in certain things he does, but all the way to the end of his life when he dies on the cross. That's what it means for each of us to die. Um, we die in our lives. We die so that our lives are spent in pursuing him. People look back on our lives and they see we pursued him and his purposes, even if it cost us relationships that we love, even if it cost us our job, even if it cost us our very life. And the first example we get of someone who followed Jesus all the way to the end is Stephen in the book of Acts. And so these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different moments in the book of Acts when we see what Jesus talked about in Mark 8, lived out. Stephen in the book of Acts um, is this picture of someone who is willing to give up everything. And my prayer in this season is that God would kindle in our hearts a desire to live like this, to think like this, to act like this, that Jesus would be so glorious and worthy to us, so beautiful to us, that the thought of clinging to anything in this life, over him would seem so foolish and utterly wasteful given our lives in this world and what he's called us to. And so if you have your Bibles, and I I really hope that you do, please take them, open them up to Acts 6. We're going to start with verse 8. Acts 6, verse 8. And as you turn there, let me give you an introduction to Stephen. Uh, Stephen uh, is one of seven leaders who are appointed by the apostles to oversee and direct and drive their ministry to care for those who are marginalized and impoverished and broken in Jerusalem. Stephen's given his life to serving others. And so this is the man we're looking at here. Think about this. He's going to spend his life loving and caring for the needs of people. That's who this person is that we're going to be looking at. We need to understand that as like sort of the banner over the story we're about to read. Um, And this is really what following Jesus looks like. Following Jesus looks like what Stephen did. He sacrificially gave himself to love other people. And so verse 8 begins looking at Stephen in action like this. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those who who were from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and they disputed with him. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. All who sat in the council saw that his face, Stephen's face, was like the face of an angel. So it's not a surprise where we find Stephen at the beginning of this story. He's doing, it says, great wonders and signs among the people. Now, these aren't magic tricks. This isn't to show some clever ability that he has. He's doing the same wonders and signs that have been done throughout the book of Acts, which is healing people. He's loving people through this gifting that he's been given from God. God's grace and and power are flowing through him to these people. So think think about this. He's probably restoring sight. He's likely um, causing people who have been lame their whole lives to be able to walk and move. He's probably recovering healing that's been gone maybe for an entire lifetime. And in a single verse, as he's doing these things, we are suddenly... Uh, introduced to a confrontation. This confrontation isn't in response to the healing, obviously. No one's going to confront anybody about restoring uh, someone's uh, sight or, or anything like that, unless you do it on the Sabbath, Jesus will tell you. <laughs> but this is in response, we're told, to the things that Stephen is communicating as he heals. For Stephen, physical healing Is always insufficient. Though it is important, though it is critical, it's insufficient in totality if it's not accompanied by the far greater need that every human has, which is their need for Jesus, their need to hear the gospel. Not knowing Christ Jesus in the gospel is the greatest need of every single human being on our planet, period. And Stephen knows this. And that's where this confrontation emerges. The freedmen and these various groups of people who are mentioned here, they're they're from different locations throughout the Mediterranean, Uh, these people uh, have a huge issue with what Stephen's saying, and so it leads to this public dispute. Despite all the signs uh, of what Stephen's showing to validate what he says, (laughs) they despise what he's saying, and they want to engage him in a debate. And Verse 10 tells us they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other other words, they couldn't argue with him. They couldn't win in an argument against him. He just was somehow able to, by the spirit, by the wisdom that he was given, argue around them. And so they resort to enlisting false witnesses. And these false witnesses claim that Jesus was going to destroy this holy place, which is the temple, and that he was going to change the customs that Moses delivered. In other words they are going to say that Stephen is blaspheming God according to their religious doctrine. And so this inability to confront him in a debate publicly is enough for them to stir up a mob. And for that mob, it says in verse 12, they came upon Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. So this is not a respectful inquiry at all. Um, They're not asking questions about his teaching. This is a brutal and vicious attack. They're literally dragging him before the Jewish council in, in order to secure some kind of judgment against him. Now, a really important distinction to make here before we jump to conclusions that we might jump to in our minds about what's going on in this scene is that this scene isn't a picture of another overbearing religious authority trying to tell the innocent, everyday man what to say and what to do. That's not what's going on here. Stephen is way more passionate and zealous about his faith than they are about theirs. This is a clash between what people believe is true and real about the world and the length that people are willing to go to fight for what they believe. That's why this happens here. The anger here isn't a a fixture of some outmoded, old, religious... Um, hostility that comes from a primitive thinking. (laughs) This kind of response is present in every single generation. The hostility we find here is not something that just happened in the past in cultures that might not be as developed as our modern society, the society we see around us today. Um, This is actually the response of every single generation, every single generation to the gospel, including our own. Let me give you an example here what if I were to walk into a public forum in our country or or even in the Pacific Northwest and I were to simply, graciously, lovingly read the words of Jesus Christ from Matthew 19, verses four through six, where he says, "'Have you not read? "'He who created them from the beginning "'made them male and female.'" And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, what if I said that? Quoting Jesus, these words have been around for 2,000 years and I'm not shouting them with a megaphone from the side of the street, I am lovingly, graciously quoting these. Would the response be dignified and civil? Would it be a fair response? These are words that in Mark 8, Jesus told us, never be ashamed of anything that I say. And yet in speaking these words, you know, we all know that I've violated so many of this generation's doctrines about how the world should operate and function. And I've committed blasphemy in their eyes. And listen to me, we must engage these kinds of issues in every issue with love and grace and gentleness. We are genuinely trying to seek the, the well being of every person in the world. But these words of Jesus are part of that dialogue. They're part of the dialogue. And yet, how would the world respond? I think Stephen's situation is not extraordinary. I think his situation is not remarkable. I think this is what it looks like to not be ashamed of the words of Christ in every generation. And therefore, Stephen's response in the middle of this situation is important and critical for us to see today. So chapter 7 is almost entirely dedicated to Stephen's speech before the council. Stephen's going to answer this question that the council is asking at the beginning of chapter 7, which is, are these things true? Are these things so? Are these accusations true? Are you really saying that (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this temple and he's going to destroy, he's going to uh, overwrite the customs of our people? And Stephen doesn't respond in chapter 7 with a yes or no. Instead, he tells a story. And it's the story of how the Hebrew people from the very beginning with Abraham all the way to the present day have lived their lives. And unfortunately, we don't have time to compass that entire story. It'd probably take five or six sermons just to go through his speech. Um, But this account here, uh, even though we're not going to be able to read it all, this account here is of the history of their people. And I would invite you to read it on your own free time. It's amazing how he weaves this speech together before the council in mere seconds. And when he does this, Stephen shows why they are wrong to accuse him in this moment, why they are wrong to accuse him of what he's been preaching and teaching. He explains how from Abraham all the way through the 12 sons of Jacob, through the story of Joseph, through Moses, who was sent to deliver and lead this people to the promised land that God had initially promised Abraham, all of those events— highlight the people of Israel's repeated resistance to God. It highlights how they have repeatedly fought against God's gracious and loving purposes since the very beginning. This happened with Joseph. This happened with Moses. This happened with the prophets. And so to answer the charge of him speaking blasphemy, Stephen recounts the entire history of his people. And he shows that their response to Christ, to to God entering the world in the person of Jesus, as a better temple, as, as as a better path to true righteousness than these customs, their response to Christ is no different than the response to people God has sent since the very beginning. And it's the response that every single one of their generations has had. And so their argument against Stephen is rendered in a a moment meaningless. It's rendered ineffectual. It's stripped down to be yet another resistance to God's gracious love and concern for his people. And so in verse 51 of chapter 7, Stephen finishes this extended speech by saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. In other words, this isn't new. This isn't new. At every point in our history, he's saying, you have responded to God with hard, unwilling hearts. And right now, this is no different. And then he continues and he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming Of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is tragic. This is so tragic how he draws this out of their story. Not only did your fathers persecute and kill the prophets who foretold of the Messiah centuries earlier, but you've now betrayed and murdered the very Messiah. And instead of keeping the law which was given to you to point to a Savior to come, you have used it to kill Jesus, the very Savior that was sent to redeem you. And now you've set your sights on me. So this is a horrific indictment that they've killed the one that God sent to save them. And yet it's all true. It's all true. And, and this may be well why they respond the way that they do. Luke tells us, now when they heard these things, all that Stephen had recounted in chapter seven, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So this isn't the response of rational people seeking to honor the truth. This is the response of hearts dominated by hatred and rage. Stephen has effectively upended their entire worldview with the story that he's recounted. And now they've dragged Stephen here. I mean, initially they dragged him here to be tried and punished. But they're the ones who are being tried. They're the ones who are being deemed guilty, not just of resisting God, not just of blasphemy against God, but of actually killing the very Messiah sent to save them. And so at this point, Stephen only has minutes left to live. And he probably knows this. He probably recognizes this is what the, this is what's going to happen. Luke tells us they ground their teeth at him, which means that it's not just anger. I mean you can be angry and not grind your teeth. This is the response of people who are physically tormented by the very sight of Stephen because of what he said. The sight of Stephen brings them so much anguish that they grind their teeth and refuse to tolerate it any further. And before we continue, we we just need to ask a question. If you and I truly embrace the words of Jesus Christ, if we refuse to be ashamed of who he is and what he said, would something like this happen to us? Would we be ready for people to hate us like this? For people to grind their teeth at us in disgust? That's the question we need to ask here. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 10 says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Doesn't leave any question about what our role is in this world. And so the question we should ask then, as we move through this passage is, how does Stephen, the first person who endures this and follows Jesus all the way through to death, how does he respond? How does he live in this moment, the last few seconds of his life? How does he respond to people who want him dead, who recoil at the sight of him? Or, here's another way to ask it, what does it look like for a person to be so gripped by the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ that he or she is willing to die? For Christ. What carries a person through that? Luke's going to tell us what carried Stephen. It says in the next verse But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, Stephen sees Jesus. Stephen sees Jesus. Now, clearly, this is a vision given to him by God, and it has profound and deep theological implications, which makes this crowd even more furious and will ultimately put them over the edge. But we need to recognize why this is critical for us, because we may not get a vision wherever in this situation. <laughs> Stephen isn't looking at these angry people. He's not listening to the hate, he's not listening to the rage. He is instead fixing his eyes on Jesus. Jesus, his savior is the only thing he's looking at here, and this is a huge deal. Because to be a Christian who is unashamed and bold in their witness and their love for people, In order for us to be that, we will need to look past hatred. We will need to look past rage and anger, even death threats. We're going to need to look past those, and we will need to lock eyes with Jesus. Jesus here is standing at the right hand of his Father, and it is though he is looking at Stephen and saying to him, That's my boy. Stephen, you belong to me. You belong to me. And I keep talking about me. Keep speaking to your last breath about me. I will carry you all the way. I promise you, I will carry you all the way home. Keep talking. Keep loving in this moment. And then Luke tells us what happens next. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knows whom he belongs to. He knows who he belongs to, and therefore he will follow him all the way for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel will save it. So think about this. Just, I mean, go there with me as stones are being hurled at him, breaking his bones, tearing apart his body. He's looking past the hate and deep into the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus is holding him in this moment. He's keeping him in the moment of his death. Jesus is the only thing in the universe that will get you through something like this. Only thing. But what's most stunning about Stephen's story is actually what he says next. And I think we need to listen to him closely because this is going to be the hardest part for us to understand and grapple with. Luke tells us, in falling to his knees, seconds away from dying, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen's last words were an act of love. He is saying essentially what Jesus said on the cross. You remember this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This story is what it's like for us to follow Jesus all the way. As he struggles to remain conscious, just think about this, as he's struggling to even breathe, he's praying for them. Forgive them. And this is critical for us to see because this isn't a man spewing out hatred and holding up a sign and being angry and filled with rage. This is a man who loves unwaveringly, even to the point of death. He refuses to be ashamed of Jesus and his words, and he refuses to stop loving people, even when they hate him. Even in this moment when they are killing him, he still is loving them. And he's saying to God, please forgive them. This is what it looks like to take up your cross. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus all the way because this is exactly what Jesus did in his death. He died loving his enemies. Romans 5 is so clear. He did not die people who loved, for the people who loved him. He died for people who didn't love him and hated him. And the question is, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus and take up our cross, can we love like this? To love like Christ is not to be silent about the truth. Stephen wasn't silent because that's not love to be silent about this truth that we preach. But it's also to know that we are called to love people who will very likely hate us and despise us. And the call of Christ is the call to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. It's not a call to be normal. It's not a call to fit in. It's not a call to be silent and just get along. It is a call to follow him all the way, no matter what. And to love people sacrificially, no matter what. And it will cost us something. It might cost us friendships. It might cost us relationships in our own family. It might cost us our job or freedom or any number of things. But whatever it does cost us, it is nothing compared to the worth of Christ Jesus. Nothing, even if it cost us our own lives. And if I can just be real with you for a moment and and share with you something that's been on my heart uh, lately. And uh, I'm just being transparent. I love you. (laughs) And I want to be honest. The scariest thing for me about this pandemic that we've been in for the last few months, for me personally, and I know everyone's coming at it from different angles, is not the actual virus. It's not even the potential economic fallout of the virus. On an eternal level, like for me personally, I find those two things not very scary at all. They're trivial, really, on an eternal level. What scared me most about this pandemic, if I'm just real with you, like, is that it would paralyze our church. I was scared that it would force us to, to become insular and to become entirely preoccupied with self-preservation and staying alive. And, and I need you to hear me because I understand it's, it is right and good, and, and I believe it's right and good to love and care for the people around us to love and care for the people in our communities, and there's nothing wrong to want to protect them, and I think that's good and right, and we should do that. But just hear me out when it comes to mission, when it comes to to communicating the gospel. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to stay safe. It doesn't. Not a single place. In fact, the entire thrust of the New Testament, if you labor over it and look at it long enough, you'll see It's the exact opposite of staying safe. It is risking everything for the sake of Christ. Not saving your life, giving your life for his sake. It's loving people, even if it costs us everything. In fact, especially when it costs us everything. Because that's exactly what Christ did for us. Jesus did not stay safe. He left heaven infiltrated the brokenness and the horror of our world, took on all of our sin, and then died. He did the exact opposite of stay safe, and we are called to follow him. Jesus in John 12, before, at, right after his earthly ministry, ministry is coming to a close, his public ministry, he says to his disciples, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Stephen is an example of this very thing because Saul, that man who was, who was overseeing this execution, will become the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. In part, because of his persecution of the church, Stephen bore that fruit. He died. Paul knew it. He was with Luke who wrote this book. So in the next few moments, as we participate in the Lord's Supper during this next song, what I would ask us to do, just as a body of believers who I know loves Jesus and wants to obey him, that we would really seek God. How do I respond to this reality? what does it look like in my life to, 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 to follow Jesus all the way as an individual or as a family? Like, what does it look like for us to live our lives like this? Some of us might be called to world missions. That would make me very glad. Some of us might be called to missions here some of us might simply be called to be bold and gracious and loving about our faith in the workplace or around our circle of friends, not, not to, to separate us from them, but to preach to them and communicate to them the glory of Jesus Christ and the worth of his beauty, knowing that it could come at a heavy cost. But here's the deal. Jesus is clear in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, he has a promise. And that promise is it bears much fruit. The reason you and I are here is is because someone believed that. The reason we're Christians is because someone believed that was true. Others before us followed Jesus all the way. And we are not here to stop where they left off. We are here to continue all the way to take up our cross and to follow him. And the promise that Christ gives us in this story of Stephen is that he will be with us every single step of the way, no matter what we go through. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us, not for a single moment. And when we speak the truth in love and when we speak it in compassion, he will stand beside us And he will carry us all the way through. And this story of Stephen is in our Bibles so that we believe it and so that we embrace it. And this isn't just a story, this is a reality that shapes our entire lives. And so let's pray and ask God to do this. Heavenly Father, such a heavy reality. And what we need, Father God, is for your grace and your mercy to, to take what is so weighty and big for individuals and families who I know have many other things on their minds. And Father, for your grace to, to, to allow this truth in all of its weight, all of its glory, to, to infiltrate the, 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 the parts of our hearts that would be resistant to this and I'm asking for myself, I need this just as much as anybody else. I'm pleading with you, Father God, make this a reality for Risen Hope and for our community of believers, Father God, that we would be willing to take up our cross and follow Christ all the way to the end, and that our lives spent in the pursuit of loving sacrificially people who do not love us and may in fact hate us and want us dead, our lives will not be spent in vain because you have promised that if the seed falls to the ground, the grain falls into the ground and is buried, it bears much fruit. We believe you, Father God. Make this a reality in our lives. Don't allow us to slip into kind of existence that insulates us from a world that is dying and needs to hear Jesus and see Jesus in us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.